Scott, second time we've been recording Triloquy in front of cameras. I don't know if, if I'm going to be feeling nervous or like I need to be more well behaved now that there's some video cameras in here. I doubt that. <laughs> Shout out to Chuck Gomez visiting from New York City. He's working on a, a short film that's going to come out whenever that comes out and is done. We'll have all the information. One of the big things, Scott, that um, the folks who are paying for the film that he's working on are interested in is not only the fact that equity and anti-racism and, and all of these things are conversations within classical music. They're conversations that are happening in nuanced and really different ways. People working on the inside and people working on the outside. Which of, of those two do you think we're we're on here? The inside or the outside? Well, you're outside. <laughs> I know oh, that. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> okay, don't get me together. <laughs> I'm on the inside. So we well, got a nice little yin yang going. Okay, yeah. Okay, thank you. Good at um, calming down that situation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah. Anyway, shout out to uh, Chuck. Thank you for being here. And like I said, when uh, make a, making a podcast is one thing, but making a movie, I can't even begin to to imagine what that's like so when that happens and i will let y'all know we didn't even get makeup it'll, it'll be a little while <laughs> but craft services was on point tonight oh though. yeah shout out to dell anyway all right so uh hello everyone welcome this week's downbeat speaking of working on the inside and the outside <laughs> uh i wanted to take we're, we're not going to break it down in a complete segment but i wanted to take the opportunity to address and acknowledge the chris cuomo situation because i think there are some um, very um, interesting intersections uh, when it comes to our work, uh, even in the arts that we can make here. So let, let's take a listen. So for, 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 first of all, for folks who don't know, Chris Cuomo is a cable news host and uh, was anyway for CNN. And he was let go for his involvement in uh, his brother, Andrew Cuomo's sexual misconduct case. I'm not here to talk about that. That's that's their business. But um, this was a bit of Chris Cuomo's uh, response uh, to getting at this point suspended. He's fired now. But let's take a listen. Uh, it hurts to even say it. Uh, it's embarrassing. But I understand it. And I understand why some people feel the way they do about what I did. I've apologized in the past. I mean it. It's the last thing I ever wanted to do was compromise any of my colleagues and do anything but help. I know they have a process that they think is important. I respect that process. So I'm not going to talk about this any more uh, than that. So for right now, let's just get after it. And there's plenty to do. So is that, does he have a podcast or something? It, or it, that... it looks like he has a serious XM show and uh, that's where he was addressing his audience. So again, like I said, this specific situation is what it is, but there are bigger conversations and larger contexts around it. First of all, Scott, I'm curious what your opinions are on the public termination, considering the proximity you had to my public termination has your perspective or approach to the purpose of them or, or how you engage them? Has that changed? What do you think about the idea of getting let go from your job and, uh, and, and that being a headline? You mean, do I have sympathy for him? Not sympathy, but just the existence of this as a news story, as a headline. Oh, because he's a personality. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and not to say that, you know, I'm I'm as famous as Chris Cuomo, but necessarily, but, <laughs> well, you, uh, but, you, but, but you have your audience, but, I, I, the, again, the question I'm asking is, once upon a time, you're reading a 
headline of someone getting fired from their job would be something that you would read outside of the context of having a little bit of proximity to that sure. very phenomenon. So I, I wonder uh, if your ideas on it has changed. Do you think it's appropriate for someone's termination to be a headline? If And if is there any use? Is that news that people uh, need to know in I, that way? I think that when you get to that stage, it, that's just going to be part of it. It mm -hmm. would be very public if you got fired, right? Sure. And you have your audience and your following mm -hmm. and people who were pulling for you as well to be successful. So that became a headline, uh, but for a lot of reasons. Sure, sure. Um, I, I, I don't know. I guess I wasn't surprised. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't all that surprised because there were accusations that were floating around beforehand. And anytime an accusation uh, on, on that caliber gets out, in uh, other news circles right there there's grains of truth behind that yeah i mean i've just been off cable news for so long my finding out was just again only by this so um i don't know i i, I feel a certain way about these certain things because i i know the stress of i can't pick up my phone or oh my inbox is just nuts i'll forget about my social media all because it's my name and this new story of losing your job so anyone can not only spin their their own narratives but form their own opinions people get into social media arguments right. about a situation they have no proximity to and right. and me being that person it's just interesting <laughs> to to bear witness to that so anyway so i mean maybe maybe it's not something that you've thought about as much as i have but my pers my perspective on terminations being a news story is just different so you're much more plugged into the social media piece of it though sure and sure. like say for example uh you know I, how many years ago if this would have happened it probably wouldn't have blown up like this because yeah. you'd only find out about it through the network mm -hmm. it wouldn't be on twitter and yeah and Facebook. i don't and i don't watch them anyway so <laughs> yeah i used to is there any good that organizations who have to let someone go can do in these uh announcements in these news stories so maybe uh, Cuomo's or, or anyone's termination should come with a statement that says we're working to do X, Y, and Z. And this was in conjunction. I mean, is, is there any uh, Did good- Did CNN that, do that? Not that I've seen. Yeah. Uh, tonight, as as we're recording this, this is the, actually in this moment, it would be a Cuomo primetime. So I, I wonder what they're doing. I'll, I'll look at the news or the internet after we get done recording. I but. think it has the potential to look good for CNN that they're handling it, right? and cleaning house, especially since they don't have the best record of doing that. And less, um, you know, this is a podcast called what? Triloquy? You know what it Do is. Do you think they're going to put another white male in that spot? Are they going <laughs> to, are they going to check off that EDI card and, and finally give, you know, a black woman that spot? <laughs> Let's see. Okay. I said it here. I said it here first. Let's see who ends up getting in that spot. Hey, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, and then, you know, finally, as you know, as, as we're getting started here, just to loop this into the arts, we talk about allyship we talk about accompliship working from the inside versus working from the outside and all those sorts of things in my opinion right or wrong this is an example of chris cuomo being an accomplice for something or for someone so whatever rule he broke whatever line he reached across that he shouldn't have to help his brother in his case that was him being an accomplice 
for his brother. What makes it being an accomplice? Because he was putting something on the line. He was making a risk to help and assist in some situation that he believed in, again, good or bad. Um, what if everyone in the arts worked that way? Imagine the ecosystem if every person broke a rule, maybe even a fireable rule for the sake of equity. Think about what that would look like, what the ecosystem would look like, and the different sort of protocols that would be normalized by that sort of critical mass of people agreeing hmm. that, hey, we want to be an accomplice to something, you know, despite what the rules say. Hmm. I'm not telling you to necessarily put anything on the line, but you can you can understand, you know, the ways in, in which going along is doing nothing and you know how doing something requires a meeting an email you know something that's outside of just the set way things are going mm -hmm. let's get started Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 128. Thank you so much for being here. You talk for a living, and I, I find I find that cat's got your tongue a lot. Goodness gracious. You asked I me, must ask the hard questions. Well, they're, they get long. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you are in a mood today trying to get me together. First it was, oh, I'm on the inside, and now it's, oh, your questions are a little long. I'm going to, okay, I got some very simple direct questions for you coming up later on in this opus. Let's see. I can't wait. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Uh, <laughs> opus 128, I believe I said, to returning listeners, thank you for uh, returning and making sure Truliqui remains a vital part of the music ecosystem and all the changes that are happening in it. Thank you so much for your continued support for new listeners, Triloquy is a podcast that digs into some issues that a lot of people don't know exist. You said you were at a dinner party and you sort of talked about what Triloquy was and, and what was their response? Uh, one gent said, you mean that is really an issue in classical music? Mm, mm, mm. And, and then I went off. <laughs> I went off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you were, you were, I mean, what, what, I guess what was some of your, well, first of all, how did you explain to them what Triloquy is? So I'm, I'm curious. Um, just the, uh, the, the very general, we deal with all the isms as they intersect with art and yeah. in particular classical music. And then what was your going on? And then he said, well, what, that's really like, like racism is a problem in classical music. And I went, hang on. Let me tell you, let me tell you a little bit. What you said, I hold on. And, <laughs> and then by the, and when I really got worked up, I started talking about, so jazz is American classical music. Blues is American classical music. American music is black. And a lot of people just don't want to admit it. If they would just embrace it, we could get past this and, and, just enjoy all all of it as music, right? And then I'm done, and I'm, and I'm all dizzy. I was like, <laughs> so, okay. So to new I, listeners, this that is what Triloquy is. <laughs> for, for more information on Triloquy, to check out past opuses and to donate, visit Triloquy.org. In addition to your support, Triloquy is made possible in part by the Shuttleworth Foundation of South Africa. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. More information at ShuttleworthFoundation.org. 
Support for Triloquy also comes from the Springboard for the Arts. Springboard for the Arts' mission is to support artists with the tools to make a living and a life and to build just and equitable communities full of meaning, joy, and connection. More information on them at springboardforthearts.org. I want to send out a huge thanks to Innocent Classroom for having me as their keynote speaker at their annual conference last week. I had the opportunity to talk about Triloquy and some of the work that we do here. Every child should know what it's like to feel innocent to believe that its world that this world is open to them uh, at innocent classroom, our society's stereotypes stand in the way. This is, I'm, I'm reading from their mission statement here. It says, we partner with administrators, principals, and classroom teachers to help them build relationships that liberate children of color from the power of racial stereotypes in their schools and classrooms. More information there at innocentclassroom.org. Also a huge shout out to Opera Next Gen and everyone over there featuring Night Trip this Saturday, uh, December 11th. I think that's Saturday. I'll have a link to that. That stream music by Carlos Simon, a Triloquy guest member of the Triloquy right. family, and a librettist Sandra Seaton. So a, a black on black on black opera performance. We love to see it. Thank you for all of your support. Everyone, thank you for being here. Let's get into movement one. So Scott, this is the time of year. We were talking earlier this evening. This is the time of year when everyone is going out to the orchestra or to the theater or to whatever to see the the Christmas themed thing. We're going to family outing. Yeah, yeah, we're going to uh we're going to get to that uh in a bit. I'm thinking about it immediately because and I'll talk about this later. My first nutcracker, my first mini um theater or orchestra things were done as a child. You know, I'm mm-hmm. in second grade or I'm in middle school or whatever, and they're sending us somewhere to learn about something. Well, you brought in an accidental this week where these kids are actually at the front of the education when it comes to the arts and these things. It's really incredible what the kids are doing. Yeah, you know, the last few opuses I've been on the education kick, finding Mm -hmm. stories about not only introducing audiences, both new and old, to the music of Black composers, but uh, also making sure that they understand the stories behind behind them. And um, So this gets a sharp from This one gets a sharp from me. This is from NPR.org. These New York City kids have written the history of an overlooked black female composer. So essentially, they wanted to find out some stories about Florence Price. Mm -hmm. They couldn't find any, so they studied and wrote one. Uh, It is Sebastian Nunez, Hazel Peebles, and Sophia Shao uh, are three of the students that are featured, um, at least in the picture anyway. I, I read down further in the article that the whole class, 45 students, had a hand in this. Yeah. But this is uh, taking place at a special music school, a K through 12 public school in Manhattan teaches high level music instruction alongside academics. And I love the sound of this classroom environment because one of the teachers said, our children are musicians. So whether or not we intentionally draw it together, they bring music into the classroom every day mm-hmm. and in the most delightful ways. So if we're talking about themes and poetry, they qualify it with a way that a theme repeats in music. So they're, they're finding that uh, synergy, that correlation, yeah. which I think yeah. is really cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading here, you know, uh, from the teacher perspective, uh, their, uh, their teacher's last name is Thompson. It says here, I think is one of the few moments in my job where I had to cancel the next meeting and I was just kind of filled with tears. It was just an incredibly beautiful 
moment. These conversations, these arguments we get into with the gatekeepers and classical music, it's all manifesting in all, mm. in all of the moments, Scott, that we, oh, you know, here we go again, or, you know, the frustrations we feel. I feel like all of that plays a big role in, you know, what these kids are experiencing. I mean, it's it's not all for nothing. And as uncomfortable and stressful as the conversation of stop only playing white music can be, you know, having those conversations is getting us to where the kids are not only, you know, waving their angry fists, they're creating material, they're creating sure. content, you know. And I was always one of those learners that I got to get in there and do it, you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, having this book as sort of like a class project can you imagine all of the other different pieces of information you bring away mm -hmm. just because you're, in, you're engaging them in, in several different ways? Um, the, the, some of the students did the artwork yeah. for the book. Um, and one of the quotes I loved, one of the 13-year-old the uh, young ladies that worked on this said, uh, she's talking about Florence Price, she worked in some of her history, some of her black background into the music, and I really love and appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So even kids can get it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rebecca Beto, I'm reading here, Rebecca Beto, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, is a 14-year-old violinist from Queens. She was also one of the lead illustrators for the book, and she says that Price has been a personal inspiration. Quote, her music has been out there performed by major orchestras, and she's a woman of color, which even now, it's like difficult to get your music shown to the world. So you don't even have to be a professional. We have whole music directors who want to argue with you about the notion of classical music's racism and we have 14 year olds for whom it is obvious you know so it excites me not only in the way that they're celebrating her legacy it excites me to uh the point of thinking about by the time they get to college you can't have a curriculum you can't have a concert season for your student orchestra that doesn't represent any women composers or composers of color mm -hmm. because they have been actively thinking yeah, no, about this since middle school they know yeah. this and one of the quotes that they read is also featured in this article when she was uh, uh having a correspondence with serge kusevitsky the conductor mm -hmm. kusevitsky yeah. Uh, she wrote, I have two handicaps, those of sex and race. Mm. Okay, so if they're getting that, um, the, the idea of that struggle, just think about what they're going to do. Think about where they're going to take this conversation. Yeah. So shout out to these. Uh, I I said she was from Queens. So yeah, New York City area kids. See, um, Chuck is bring here with the camera, bringing in the positive energy from New York City. Mm -hmm. But you said you can't move there. You said you you couldn't just do I, it. I would have I would have an anxiety attack every fifteen minutes. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And then people walking slow, four wide down the sidewalk. So you in a hurry? Are you trying to get? And so you're trying to walk around them. Anyway, it's a wonder that the kids make it. A New York City child, you know, must grow up with a different type of, type of attitude. Probably. You know, just to be able to go to their teacher and say, listen, this is what we want to learn about. And we understand that there are any books. So whatever Ooh. you have planned, that's cute. We're going to write a new book. <laughs> to talk out. about we want to talk about. Shout out to Special Music School. It sounds like they're doing the good work. Yeah, most definitely. Well, of course, we have to listen to a little bit of Florence Price's music to get us to right. our next accidental. What did you have in mind? Adoration, because you know we've been talking about how uh, Florence Price's symphonies and her violin concerto are getting mm -hmm. a lot of traction and a lot of play. 
but she has some lovely duo and chamber works too. Yeah. And, and Adoration is a great example of that. Man, you talk about working on the inside and on the outside, having people in, in every area you can. I am so glad that Randall Gooseby has been able to get a spot on the inside in his own way. That's what we heard playing violin there mm-hmm. with Zhu Wong. I mean, I understand, you know, we we talked uh, on this podcast, we've talked about uh, blind Tom Wiggins and the idea of just parading this black person around for the sake of X, Y, and Z, you know. He's he's uh, even if you want to reduce what he's managed to accomplish as a young black violinist to that, he's doing so beautifully. <laughs> you yeah. know, so if you're going to be around here working for these white folks and, and trying to help them uh, check off a box, you know, at least at least show them what you got. And that's what Randall Gooseby is doing. Shout out to Randall Gooseby. I can't wait until he is up there with the. Uh, Long Longs and the who's the uh, the very famous violinist Bill uh, Shaham jo- or uh, Joshua Bell, sure, you know sure. all of those people, you know, just out on your own and not representative uh, of you know black artistry, but even even more artistry in general. And you're black, and you're bringing this music of Florence Price and all of these underrepresented composers with you, and then you bring in the people. With you, you know, you like he's 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 making sure that uh, the the conversations that are happening in these donor meetings or however solo uh, musicians get their money to survive, you know, he's he's throwing something into those spaces as well. I mean, it's it's really exciting for me to think about. And he's on Deutsche Gramophone, isn't he? Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. that's that's one of the big boys. <laughs> that says something. <laughs> I'm sure uh, his recordings have come across your playlist at work, right? Yeah, yep. I, I bet you. Uh, you know, I hope that. Thinking about these conversations more actively here gives you a a depth of knowledge to share with the audience. You know, this isn't just any old recording of whatever this is. This is Randall Gooseby. Y'all need to know his name. Any, that would be the break for me. But <laughs> but I'm sure you give him his flowers on the air. Of course. Yeah. Um, you know you know that I push for this sort of thing to be yeah. to be put on my playlist. And when it comes across, for those who don't know, at the top of every hour there is something called the billboard. You Mm -hmm. get a minute, sort of an intro of what's coming up. If I have a uh, black or woman composer in any hour, they get the top spot, no matter what the piece is. Yeah, period, period. Yeah, I I even extend that um, to living composers. You know, I just, just if if there is anything I can tell y'all about this hour of programming that makes music more, uh, that proves that music is more alive and more colorful and more diverse than you may think about it. This is, this is what I'm doing. But of course, you know, Scott, there is a, uh, a dangerously wrong way to do it as well. I think that segues us here. So (laughs) um, I'm reading from BBC.com. First of all, I'm going to, I want to, I'm going to give it a sharp and I'm just going to say that this is a natural as well, because while uh, what this ballet company is doing is good, I think 
it should have been what was done decades ago, you know. So, mm-hmm. I, but I won't give it a full flat. But you know, we're 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 there. I'm reading here from BBC.com. Scottish ballet revises the Nutcracker to address racism. For many people, a trip to the theater to see the ballet, the Nutcracker, is as traditional as it gets. A magical tale of toys that come to life, dances in the snow, and a majestic score by Tchaikovsky. But the Nutcracker has become increasingly problematic for ballet companies, particularly those like Scottish Ballet who are keen to stand up against racism in the industry as well as encouraging diversity in their own organization. So basically, for folks who don't know the story of the Nutcracker, um, Clara has, the way I've always thought about it, Clara has an acid trip in front of the TV. (laughs) I mean, in front of the uh, Christmas tree. (laughs) And it grows, and then mice come out who are human-sized, and there's a war. So this is (laughs) Alice in the Christmas tree. I mean, I mean, if yeah. you, I mean, I've, I've played the Nutcracker way more times than I could ever count. I yeah. know this story. Yeah. I know this music. So anyway, um, and, and you know, from there, uh, the the Nutcracker saves her from the Rat King, and they go on this uh, journey through the land of sweets, where they yep. get to engage all of these different things. Well, when they engage the different. Um, coffees and teas and different sweets. There are characteristic dances that are representative of different world cultures. So, for example, um, I'll, 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 I'll play a little bit here. I know the first time I went to the Nutcracker, it was in second grade, and I fell in love with... Um, I think it's the coffee scene. See, I, we, we associated with the, the characteristic culture more than we do the actual sweets that right. they were visiting. But I think it's the coffee uh, movement where there is an Arabian dance and there's some some nice music in it, especially some nice bassoon music. Let's listen to a little bit of it. You know, as we were listening to that, I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be toxic for a minute. One of the reasons me and a few of my friends love to play the ballet is because you get men in tights, and I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. But anyway, I knew that was coming. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> I knew that's the one you were after. Yep. You have these different characteristic dances of different cultures. So there's the Russian dance, and there's one that um, I always thought about of that as like sort of English or whatever. Mm. And then uh, you have the the Chinese dance, and you know when you talk about all of these characteristic musical sounds, the way that they're depicted on stage, it's very easy for things to you know get problems, <laughs> get a little problematic. You know there has been. Um, brown face and even black face throughout different uh, performances and productions of the Nutcracker. Of course, yellow face and, you know, so-called yellow face. We won't have that conversation today because I think black face is a phrase that can't be morphed and shifted into something else. Turned you know, went through that you know, in a big way. Uh, but, in, but that's a different conversation. Right. Anyway, my point is there's there are many places where you can go wrong and not celebrating the culture, but uh, just characterizing it and uh, uh, what's the trivializing the culture even in a way that really just doesn't celebrate it anyway. So all of that to say, the Scottish um, ballet is doing things to change that. For so, for example, during the famous Chinese dance, just just in case people don't know, let's let's listen to a little bit of that as I read this here. Here's the Chinese dance. 
okay? And see, even the music itself, I, even as an orchestral bassoonist, something in me and Aaron, shout out to Aaron, would talk about is even, aren't these notes even a little problematic sounding? Doesn't this sound like a Russian white man saying, oh, this is what Chinese people's music sounds like. Isn't this cute? Isn't this fun? You know, I think there's a, a, certainly a conversation that can be had there. Well, in my mind then, maybe the Russian guy really didn't know what Chinese music sounded like because I didn't identify it that way. Maybe we need to do more reading about Tchaikovsky. Did he travel? I mean, he was on a, a military. No, that was Rimsky-Korsakov I'm thinking about. So, you know, who who knows, you know, what, what he got around to. Anyway, even, you know, with keeping the music, the Scottish ballet, and see, this is why it gets a natural. Yeah, let me double down. This is why it gets a natural and not a full, full sharp because, Keeping the music is one thing, and they have gone to getting traditional Chinese dancers to advise and choreograph scenes like that. Mm. They'll get rid of the point shoes, you know, for scenes like that, for example, to make sure that they're remaining as culturally competent as they can be. Um, while that is great, I still think there's an argument for the the music itself. We're, we're going to get to that later on uh, in this opus, in, in the triloquy. For it or against it? For, sorry, but the music, you said there's an argument for it. Are you, are, uh, 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 th there's an argument for it and arguments against it. Uh, I think okay. it, it, it goes both ways. But anyway, the Scottish ballet is, you know, doing, doing what they have to do. One of the things I think this is important and notable to talk about um, is because, again, as I was saying a few minutes ago, this is when a lot of people are going and engaging the arts in a way that they wouldn't any other time of year. I remember as an orchestral uh, musician, the Christmas Pops was the the concert that was packed. Now, it, it was interesting in, in my Latin down in Knoxville, the free MLK concert, you you couldn't get into there. And there's something to be said about a free concert and a free concert that's being put on for a purpose. Anyway, most folks who are buying a ticket to have a night at the symphony, you know, or a night at the theater, mm -hmm. that's happening during Christmas time, the holiday season. Wouldn't you say there's some significance to making sure that we're practicing equity and reaching toward cultural competency in the best way we can during this season when we have the person who's only going to go to an orchestra concert or to a ballet one time? Well, uh, that's a great point because uh, I agree with you that this the opportunity is ripe. You've got such a huge audience at this point. The first time I saw it was a was a Christmas field trip in grade school, mm -hmm. and I remember being absolutely hypnotized. Yeah, not 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 enough to go and become a ballet dancer or sure. a musician or anything, but they really. Now that I'm thinking about it, they really did make up. You, you know, the Chinese dancers. They and you and you so know. you when you went, this was 1979 or something. Stop. So it was really <laughs> stop it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they, they... It was a very traditional I'm, production. Traditional to to the... Yeah, I, okay, I got right. you. I, you're, you're not saying it wasn't like traditional Chinese dancing. It was traditional as far as the Western gaze exactly. of, of these things. Anyway, um, so... I, th I think, you know, we need to think about that as we're engaging the Nutcracker and um, and different holiday performances. You know, if you're an orchestral musician, if you uh, work in the arts, in the theater, in any kind of way, I just think it's an important thing to think about because you're going to have the eyes and ears of people who will not be sitting in that type of seat, uh, engaging that type of art for the next year or so when 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 you were in theater did you not feel that some shows were going to pull in 
more of of the folks who needed to who wanted to try out theater or it was a specific sure. event or whatever. Yeah, and usually it was uh, Halloween, Christmas, and Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there is a quote in here that stood out to me because I haven't heard anybody else say it. Okay, I hear the conversations that you have with some of your friends about organizations that you're with with uh, Black Opera Alliance, for yep, example, shout out and, the, to them, yep. and the work that you're trying to do there um, and the trouble that you're running into. Here's a quote from the ballet's, ballet's CEO and artistic director. This is Christopher Hampson said, commitments come easily through writing or speaking. So our most important commitment is to help drive anti-racism in action. So what a, what a great starting. And can you point to somebody here who has said something like this? Because if if you have, I want to know about it. Yeah, I'm sure they exist. I'm sure they exist. I don't want to, you know, make that sort of blanket That's what statement. I'm saying. But um, it's, it's, it's good to see. But especially, Scott, over across the ocean, because we still <laughs> trying to get them over in Amsterdam to get rid of black heat, you know, and that sort of thing. And in the parades and all that stuff. We were saying, I think before we cut on the mics, I... Uh, make a point, even as just background, to find a stream of Nutcracker every holiday season to have on. Dell's making cookies. I'm drinking something alcoholic, whatever. And there's the Nutcracker over there. How quaint, you know. Every other year, it seems, not only are we talking about inappropriate characterizations of uh, Arabian culture or Chinese culture, straight up blackface for that black Pete, you know, in the in the first part of the ballet. So there's still so much work to go. And, you know, for, for the, you know, the the fact, my point is that is not obviously a problem for a lot of people that, still. That is what I am especially, a gog about. Especially considering the age old traditions over there in Europe. It's one thing for us to talk about things here in the United States, but they've been doing over that over there forever. So this really must be the, uh, you know, these folks sticking their neck out in, in light of that context. I am uncertain what cave or rock <laughs> a person lives under to in 2021 not know that this is not okay to change the color of your face i want to go to amsterdam and get high but so, let someone not in their right mind maybe they've been drinking a little bit too much come tap me on the shoulder and be like oh hey it's black pete you're gonna be seeing me on buzzfeed i'm in an amsterdam jail uh u.s government do what you can <laughs> Anyway, um, <laughs> thoughts and prayers to all of the musicians who have to play 17 Nutcrackers this, e uh, this season. And way to go, Scottish Ballet. <laughs> way to um, go. I grew up, Scott, at least I remember my earliest memories, like uh, being a teenager, and Ballet Memphis would do what they call the Nut Remix. So they would take the general story of the Nutcracker, but because this is a black-ass city with black-ass people, we have to make this story black. So they incorporate Jukin. You know, they make um, the Nutcracker who turns into the prince someone who's black and not someone who's wearing some uh, corny-ass ballet costume. He up there, you know, with some wands on, with some Jordan wands, icy whites. They look brand you new. Know? <laughs> you know, so that sort of cultural competency. And then not only um, are the aesthetics different, but the music is different. You have some hip hop numbers. You have um, 
uh, what am I thinking about? Like the 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 uh, toy soldiers. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure you can just imagine the sort of robotic pop, like and drop they do, and and all that. It's fly. I love that. It's fly. Anyway, uh, we want to uh, transition out of this uh, second and final accidental, since we're we're really jabbing this week um, with a little music from the Nut Remix. Shout out to everyone down there at Ballet Memphis, and again. Try to give us your best nutcracker, your least racist nutcracker this year. Imagine that theater. Imagine how hype it would be if you have the right crowd and you're still telling the story of the Nutcracker and it's still a holiday performance and all of those things, but people are connecting to it a little better. Is there any any connection to Tchaikovsky's music or is it all themes that they've written? Uh, there, there's, there, are, there's a lot of crossover. So I, I think that's an example of like some of the newly composed stuff. But they'll put some 808s on the Russian dance, and even beyond uh, the the characteristic stuff, I think they take out Chinese and put in Africa, and you have a, a whole uh, drumming and and dance thing. And I'm sure there are uh, places all over the. Um, uh, the country doing a different nutcracker. I think there's a, a Duke Ellington nutcracker, isn't mm-hmm. there? Or like a jazz uh, nutcracker. I think I think there is. I'm um, pretty sure that right, exists. But I don't, yeah, but I don't. I'm not remembering the title of it. But I think you're right. Yeah. Anyway, well, uh, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are taking the second ending. We pay uh, take a piece of music we've been listening to over and over all week, and we uh, instead of repeating it fully one more time, we bring it in here to tell y'all why we've been repeating it. I'm gonna go ahead and, and get us started this week, Scott, because. We're in the holiday season officially. There's no more fighting it. We're here, especially mm-hmm. with today's temperatures here in Minnesota. High Eight. temperature of, yeah, like it was uh, nine degrees. I'm outside with Chuck and the camera today. Uh, anyway, so we're here in the holiday season. I know how a lot of people love to fight that holiday music. You said y'all aren't starting with it until the 10th, December 10th. No, it's in there. Oh, it's already in there. And and see, the, the, the energy you're giving me right now towards holiday music do you have no favorites in the catalog? Are there none of these uh, classical, so-called classical holiday recordings that you're like, oh, yeah, it's it's the time of year to listen to Sleigh Ride again. I'm sure you're not saying that about Sleigh Ride. No, I like to hear I, I like to hear a good big voice do Oh, Holy Night. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I also like a Christmas song, uh, in particular, the way Mel Torme does it. Okay. But the see, Velvet Fog. But the well, I guess the Oh, Holy Night could... Uh, be allowed to be shared on on classical uh, on mm-hmm. airwaves, and mm-hmm. I think you know that's that's an interest uh, that's an interesting point you're making me think about when it comes to holiday music. That's the opportunity for even more of these aesthetic crossovers. Everybody knows whether they want to or not. Mariah Carey's all I want for Christmas, you know. <laughs> so for you know, but and and that's a style of music, and maybe even an artist that a lot of those folks wouldn't listen to or even know if it weren't for that. You right. know, same with um, the folks we were talking about uh, last week, the Vince Guaraldi. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, uh, trio. You know, everybody is not down with the smooth jazz, but when it's come Christmas time, people pay attention to it. You right. Know? I think that they get a little bit more forgiving. Yeah. Anyway, all that to say that I have a few Christmas favorites. I'm going to try to share a few of them over uh, the course of these next couple of weeks uh, throughout the holidays. But if there's one tune that I have to make sure all of my audience is here when it's time for holiday music. This is uh, whether I'm programming or on the radio here on Triloquy. I think it's this one. I just want to be the uh, sleigh bell player. Listen to him. Cool on two and four. (laughs) You think he's got the woodblock too? Probably. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. When people ask me my favorite Christmas album just of all, I love the Jackson 5 Christmas album. Mm. When Mm -hmm. we're talking about music, that is uh, more aligned with the traditional definitions of classical music. Again, what I don't have to argue about when I when it comes to Christmas programming. This Christmas with Amani wins. Oh my gosh, it can't be beat. Of course, that's their cover of the famous Donny Hathaway. This Christmas, but the whole album is called This Christmas. So um, you have a lot of the traditional carols on there, sort of spun not only in a a spiced up, seasoned, jazzy, black way, but through the instruments of a woodwind quintet. Mm-hmm. Monica Ellis was bodying that. That's very nice. Bodying yeah. that. And, you know, of course, you get um, the the flavors of all of these incredible musicians, you know, Jeff Scott, Valerie Coleman, all of them, Toyin. It's 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 really dope. And if y'all don't know, if anyone out here is not familiar with the Imani Wins Christmas album, Definitely go get it. It's on all of the streaming, and it's it's really incredible. I know there. Um, I remember maybe last year or, or the year before, uh, I brought up this album, and you talked about just having it on as as it's cold outside. You're cooking or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is it's just a, a a really fun listen. You know, for me, it's uh, the Glenn Campbell Christmas. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> the one you love. Yeah. As a, go and check out Pretty Paper. It's a very touching little song. Love do, you, it. do you have Pretty Paper to share with us this week? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, this is this is just an example of uh, what it was like around my house in the early days of December. So where we are now is we're getting ready for, um, uh, you know, mom's doing her uh, raisin-filled cookies. Mm-hmm. And I'm helping dad with the tree. And then... Pretty paper. Pretty ribbons of blue Wrapped your presents to your darling from you Pretty pencils to write I love you Pretty paper, pretty ribbons Boy can sing. Mm. Who say he can't sing? Boy, me. <laughs> I've never. I'm, I'm not familiar with Glenn Campbell. You see, 
I'm not going to make, I have to make something else, the triloquy photo this week. But <laughs> oh, would you go with but that? If, but if I didn't have to make something else, we're going to get into it in the fourth movement. If I didn't have to make something else, the triloquy photo this week, this photo of Glenn Campbell would be, I mean, he is fresh <laughs> with his gold chain and this white turtleneck. Turtleneck oh, in front you of better, the fire. Oh, you better do it, you know there's a, You know there's a bearskin rug under there. <laughs> Even on the cover of the uh, Imani Winds, wearing, there must be something about winter white. Maybe. You know, nice, cozy winter white. They knew they were going to get that picture taken. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shout, shout, shout out to Imani Wins. Shout out to Glenn Campbell as well. Oh, he, I'll, see, now you have something else that I can put on the, on the uh, turntables, on the, on the speakers, while, again, Dell is making the Christmas cookies. Yeah, I love it. It's a great album. It just reminds me of, you know, uh, when mom was alive, and she was the one that really brought Christmas to life. Yeah. Because now I don't get a tree. Um, I'm, I'm not a religious person. So I don't, and I don't go in for the commercialism aspect of it. Yeah. So I just really don't observe the holiday. Yeah. And it's stress-free and it's great. Well, <laughs> I buy gifts for the people I want to buy gifts for and, and I don't feel obligated. I, I just, I'm so tightly wound in general, but it's, you know, I feel like the holiday season is the time where I can say, okay, fine. Let me be holly and motherfucking jolly for <laughs> a couple of weeks, you know, and just let my, let my, let my own emotions just relax a little bit, you know? So I know shout yeah. out, shout out to Christmas music. Anyway, that wasn't your second movement. What you got for a second movement this week? Last week you were talking about even finding a way to program ABBA music. Yeah. And one of the members of ABBA is Bjorn Oveas. Okay. And as I was walking radar um, just a few days, it must have been Wednesday of last week, I thought, he, he worked with some other people on a concept album in 1985 called Chess. And there was a musical that was written after the fact okay. called Chess. And it's, and it's about just what you think it would be about. Uh, there is an American chess player who's going on to a grand tournament with a Russian chess player. And the runaway hit from it is a track called One Night in Bangkok. But it has orchestral music like this. Now, as you listen, here I hear that um, sort of Kachaturian or uh, maybe Rimsky-Korsakov sure. sort of a vibe, right? Yeah, not Arabians, but anyway. <laughs> but, but this, or, or maybe Borodin, you yeah. know, the way that he did right. And then it cuts into more music of 1985. Oriental setting in the city, don't know what the city is kept. The creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything but Yule Brynner. All right, look, let's let's talk about it. I know there's other stuff that you want to get to in, in this tune, but let's just talk about that opening, okay? Who wrote that? I, I mean, and and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you know, I, I'm I'm sure that can be researched. The orchestral part, yeah. I'm not like, sure what, about what the is that, part. but you know, the fact that you associate those sounds with the. Uh, Borodins, you know, all of these Russian composers who wrote music that was supposed to evoke a different culture. Uh -huh. I think that's very telling. And I think that comes from the way that those sounds have come to us. Again, we were talking about Nutcracker and all of that stuff. We aren't saying the names of um, uh, Middle Eastern orchestral composers. We're saying the names of folks who utilized those sounds. I just think, I don't know, I think that's very uh, interesting. It's, it's something to note. Yeah, that's a correlation that I wasn't exactly thinking of. 
What, what, as I'm over here chair dancing <laughs> along. Right. So, you know, so as we continue to think about that and talk about, you know, about that, what is it about uh, this piece of music that had you repeating it? Does it take you back to 1980? <laughs> it takes me back to 1985, 100%. <laughs> See, and when I was listening to this, the, the other people in my neighborhood that I, and the folks that I ran around with, if they found out that I like this, they would kick my ass up between my shoulder blades. I mean, it, it, this was not music that was considered cool with the circles that I was in. Um, one of the things that I love about it is the chorus, the, uh, the sort of response. You hear Murray Head's voice doing sort of the, you know, the speak rap mm -hmm. throughout it. And he's dragging this city. Sure. <laughs> he is not being kind to the city at all. And, the, and then the chorus comes in and it's trying to talk about how great, great it is. And it's this great back and forth. Um, and also, it happens to have, in my opinion, the best flute solo in pop music ever written. Send your angry emails to Scott. I mean, I'm as I think about and and how I'm even challenging myself to think about the uh, characterization that may be problematic that we hear in the music itself in that incredibly performed flute solo with all of the the beatbox fluting and the flutter tonguing as as incredible as that was. I can't help but to think to myself, is something being appropriated here, especially in the context? Okay, I'm glad this of, is. I'm, yeah. I'm glad this is happening because not when I was li first listening to it in 1985 and not knowing the music of that culture, mm -hmm. there would be no way that I would know if it was appropriation, right? Right. Right. Okay. So when you hear it and you started to wonder, what about it tripped that? thought process I, th I guess it's 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 things that um as you say a lot of people wouldn't think about i'm thinking about the modular scales and how composers as you named like tchaikovsky and the boradines would take those sounds take take you know that that those aesthetics and juxtapose them on ideas of the orient as it were or or the middle east and those mm. things so that's that's what takes me there it's not me casting blame it's just me saying i can't help but to hear that with my ears as i, I as i listen to this for the first time i'm gonna keep on listening to it <laughs> <laughs> and that's that <laughs> I, okay if, I, if i'm problematic i guess i'm problematic i i didn't realize it and and even still to this day i'm i'm not sure how if the if the flute is appropriating anything, I, I think I have to understand this piece of music. Well, and, and maybe I don't have to. If someone feels a way when they hear if a if a Hmong person hears this and says, "Oh, that's some bullshit," because they're ripping off a da 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 and blah blah blah. You know, I'm I'm not going to police how someone feels about this. What I so I'm not going to say that. I, I wouldn't say to that person, "Oh, well, it's in a certain context, and you have to see the whole musical." That, that's what I wouldn't say that. And what I'm saying is, I'm curious to know how this fits into the broader thing it belongs to, because it says from chess, right? right. I, I would be interested to see chess, I suppose. And do you know of any Thai composers that I could check out? 
Well, you know, we had John Solpayabanat on on Triloquy, and I'm uh, he's Thai, and I'm I'm sure he could help you with that. I don't know that. Well, I, I guess it does say one night in Bangkok. See, and that's the problem. What if Bangkok was the only other Asian city they knew other than Hong Kong, and they were like, okay, well, we'll just call it that. This sounds sort of Asian, right? I'm not sure. Siam is used in as one of the lyrics. I'm so. going. I'm go. I, I went here to the Wikipedia. It says the full version of the song begins with an orchestral introduction entitled Bangkok of Or. Oriental style. I'm going to stop talking. This is your pick. <laughs> anyway, I mean, hey, look, I, it's I'm, a, I'm glad this is happening. It's a, it's I'm a, glad this is happening. It's, it's definitely um, a cool tune. I think, again, as we look back at this music that we have these uh, relationships with that, you know, we love, we have memories to, we we dance on the street like everyone is looking. <laughs> as you said, you did as you were uh, walking uh, radar. I, there's, I think I feel like I was saying this about another piece of music a few weeks ago. The music um, deserves to be looked at differently. It, the music deserves the opportunity to be uh, framed within contemporary context. And what does it mean? Are there cultural implications of this music that we didn't understand then that we do now? I'm not saying cancel the piece of music. You know, no, I know, it, I know, no, I know you're not. But, but, but I'm, I'm saying... And I know that you're not attacking me for liking it. <laughs> but like I said, this, this is good for me to know because how would I have known otherwise? Sure. Sure. If I if I didn't bring it in because I yeah, I wasn't thinking that way. Yeah. Thoughts and prayers to um, to me to Murray Head. No, <laughs> nobody has sent an email to Murray Head. Man, they haven't tried to cancel him. <laughs> Probably. Where is Murray Head? Maybe you can get him on Triloquy, Scott. I don't think and we, we could talk about I it. I don't know if we need to do that. <laughs> anyway, I think we should get Bjorn Oveas on. Yeah, that would be cool. All right. Well, um, today's guest, as we get into the third movement, is Renee Baker. Renee Baker is um, a composer based in Chicago, an advocate for new and improvisatory music, has been out here pushing from the inside and from the outside for decades now. So um, a professional music, uh, a musician, a member of uh, the Chicago Sinfonietta, uh, I believe uh, has collaborated now with um, all sorts of uh, ensembles and most recently uh, the AACM of Chicago, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Music, another um, historically black organization. So uh, Renee Baker joins me in part one of our conversation this week uh, to talk about some of her beginnings and her journey as a black musician, some of the fights she had to have uh, along the way and, you know, the the belief that she has in supporting black organizations like AAC, AACM, where we begin our conversation. Uh, she talks about the challenges of a Zoom world. You know, uh, Renee Baker told me that she is not down for this virtual stuff. She no. likes to be in person with people and, and, and doing those things. But f- even through Zoom, there are really great opportunities that have risen up, including our opportunity to talk with each other for the first time. We were co-panelists on on this panel. And, uh, you know, from the shit I was talking, she was like, oh, okay, so this brother must be somebody who I need to talk to. So we we were finally connected. And I'm so glad to feature her uh, this week on Triloquy. To get us uh, into my conversation with her, I wanted to share one of her compositions. This is um, a a collaboration between Renee Baker and the Chicago Modern Orchestra Project, a tune here called Warm Broth, because Mm -hmm. Again, we're in the holiday season. It's cold outside. Nothing like warm broth on the stove, creating condensation on the window as that snow falls. And, you know, you're getting cozy. Warm broth. 
off by Renee Baker to get us into my conversation with her. a fan of the whole zoom thing because i thought so now nobody's gonna call each other because everything's gonna be recorded so now we need all need to be careful but it did bring up opportunities that were not possible before Mm -hmm. without having everybody together geographically but when i left the meeting i thought this dude is interesting we we need (laughs) we need to because I could hear everything you were saying, but the platform wasn't large enough for all of us to connect. Yeah, yeah. What do you mean by uh, be careful? Do you think there are parts of these conversations that should be off record or, or nope. what do you mean? Absolutely not. Um, but you don't want to leave the parties with limited explanations about what you said. And the thing is, when you have something and it's a it's a half an hour and you got four people, you know, people, I would suspect, tend to practice their answers. Mm-hmm. Because when people send me questions, I'm like, please, you are not going to prime this pump. I am going <laughs> to say what I want to say. Yes. So the questions I don't need, but without Bogarten the whole time, we all have to limit what what we say because of time. Yeah, that's that's all. Well, you have you have all the time you need here. Trust. (laughs) Oh, 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 I've got a free day. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, every single Renee Baker bio that I read, it includes a long list of not only your musical creations, but your organizational creations. I wonder if you can uh, speak to the importance of creation, considering the context of moving forward as a people, the creative conversation that you speak to, just moving societal ideas forward. Yeah. Well, see, I moved that idea forward 20 years ago. Oh, okay. (laughs) You said you've been here. Um, I have. And the reason why I'm, I, you know, I'm not trying to get all down and dirty. Everything's not going to be black and white, but it is black and white. Sure. Here's the thing. When once we get our training. And, and we get to the level that we think we need to be. In order to be engaged. On white platforms, mm-hmm. when we get there, we find that often the issues that keep us from being engaged doesn't have anything to do with our skill set. So now we've sat in the practice rooms, we've got bloody fingers, we've damaged nerve endings, we've spent money we didn't have, all this to grab conservatory level skill sets, right? So then we come out and then what happens? If you're lucky, you might land something, but it's often not enough for you to eat with. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. I learned very early on. If they invite you to the table, you might not get a plate. Or if you get to the table and you got a plate, you might not get any food. You might be serving it to somebody else. Correct. Or you may get no utensils. Mm -hmm. You know, so very, very rarely did I find that as a result of all the training and the music festivals and the Sevchik and the Kreutzer and the private lessons did not mean an automatic open door. Right. So I said, okay, let's look at this scientifically. What are my skill sets? And because I'm the kind of person that I am, I had a whole lot of skill sets and they weren't, they weren't dabbling skill sets. They were things that I could actually monetize. And I figured that out in college. Okay. So I tried various kinds of little businesses that I could do on the side, along with the freelancing and everything and practicing and taking auditions and, you know, but you have to do something to fund taking the auditions, you know, plane tickets, somewhere to stay, something to eat, some way to get around. And the time to so, practice. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I just looked at the whole picture as a life picture. And I said, OK, so what can I do on this side that will generate some income? so that I can approach the other stuff that I really like to do. I am a genuine entrepreneur from my teens mm. because I never saw any of my grandparents do anything but work for themselves, but own their own businesses. Oh, wow. And then I saw my parents work, but... I come from a lineage of you do it yourself, you make it happen. And so even though my parents, my mom was a nurse, my dad was an accountant, neither of those were anything that I would aspire to. Sorry. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted music. So I took the example, my grandfather, my, my um, maternal grandfather had a house painting business, owned his own vans had his boats, you know, and my, both of my grandmothers watched, they had daycare. Every, almost every child in the family went through those daycares, but that was income. So it, once I got older, I realized that's why they were always at home. They were always mm -hmm. available for, for all of us. Yeah. Okay. So I'll be honest. I tried everything. I opened um, I opened a little uh, exercise salon. I painted clothing and hats and socks and shoes for craft places. Um, I tried cooking things. There was nothing that I wouldn't try. But then once, once I got to Chicago, 
with the plethora of musicians that I was meeting and whatever, I thought, okay, so let's turn this back to music. So I can start groups. I can mm -hmm. start trios. I can start, I can start any kind of group. And so I did like lots of people. We were doing weddings every weekend, you know, parties, receptions. And I, I created my books with uh, music in it. But the books that I would created had my own music in it. Okay. Now, I hadn't even said anything about to anybody about wanting to compose. So I put pseudonyms on everything. I never put, I didn't put my name on anything until I did my first cruise ship job. And this was down the Yangtze River. And the cruise director said, we need something. And so I wrote this piece called Green Tea. Okay. <laughs> Oat. Um, and the players played it. And, you know, people loved it. You know, it's entertainment. But I just felt that anything that I did outside of music, I had to do to enable me to play music. Mm, I see. Yeah, I, I never let it go. I just never let it go. So um, I was 23 when I got to Chicago. And I'll tell you a little story. Right now I'm subbing at DePaul University. I am conducting the new music ensemble and the concert orchestra. Okay. Because I have both thorough backgrounds in the crazy and the classical. <laughs> but almost 40 years ago, when I came here, I had a scholarship to go to DePaul to do my master's. My first rehearsal, when the conductor mentioned to the operations guy or the production guy, we have a new viola student. We need one more chair on stage. He picked a chair up and threw it on stage. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And that was your entry. That was your introduction. That was the entry and that was the end. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so part of that scholarship was that I was to get private lessons with Rami Solomonow, who was at that time the principal of Lyric. Mm -hmm. So I get the rest of that scholarship back and I took the private lesson part and moved on. So it's kind of ironic that almost 40 years later, ooh, I'm in the hallowed halls you know, <laughs> as a as a professor, but it was circuitous, you know, getting there. And um, I'm just subbing. But I dig it and I could have done it 30 years earlier had there not been such a violent reaction. Right. Right. To a minority student, you know, crashing the gates. So in starting groups, starting groups, starting groups, I was really good at assessing people's skill sets and um, just forming groups, new music groups, graphic score groups, through composed groups, wedding groups, you name it, I tried it. And we all ate, see, because that was the thing that I really needed. I needed everybody that worked with me to be able 
to pay the bills, to be able to eat. Yeah. Yeah. And so if that's what I had to do to help further the journey in classical music, because that's where I was dyed in the wool, that's what I did. So later in the 80s, up comes Chicago Sinfonietta. And I, you know, I auditioned and that became the next 25 years, along with many, many other things. So I got all off the path, didn't I? Oh, but, no, you're fine. But what you're making me think about is in the idea of creating our own and, and working toward our own liberation, when you throw in the idea of classical music, Western classical music, and that classical training, because, you know, what I think about all the time, it's it's not just a training of the fingers and the ears and the embouchure. Right. It's a training of the mind. So, you know, is oh, is, yeah. is it a both and conversation how how do we uh capture our own self in classical training and in classical music if the aspiration is the uh the this symphony or this philharmonic or or whatever that's what i learned okay this is what i was thinking about when we had our last conversation but i didn't get a chance to say it okay so when we look at decolonizing classical music. Mm -hmm. Basically, in, in my mind, what we're talking about is making the making of classical music as white, and then everything else is the other or right. black or, or whatever. The fact is, at the bottom of all this, it's just plain old racism. Okay? At the end of the day. It, I'm sorry. That that's what's at the bottom. So for me, it's not about the style of music that I love. It's not about whether I want to play Schubert this day or Anthony Braxton the next day. It's not about do I want to uh, study about um, Muhal Abrams and the AACM or do I want to study about a Paul Freeman who at the top of his skill set mm -hmm. could not get a job. Right. Maestro Paul Freeman, for folks who don't know. Maestro, yes. With all the things that I did and tried to do, the example of a Black man, a doctor, a maestro, at the top of his game, unable to get a job in this country, just shook the rafters for me. I learned so much from him. And also, at the same time, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson came into my life. Mm -hmm. Rest in peace, so, rest in power. So here we go. Two, just one of many, but two Black men that intersected in my universe, not conducting major symphonies. Okay. Paul and I talked at length because I there was sometimes some confusion for me because I thought coming from D.C. and not that D.C. squeaky clean, but I had never experienced the level of overt racism in classical music that I encountered when I had the first chair thrown here. 
So I'm a product of the DC Youth Orchestra Program. Lots of us, Michael Morgan, John mm-hmm. Williams, Claudine Nash, there are tons of us who still managed to carve out lives in classical music. But I'm going to throw something out there. Why was Michael Morgan in Oakland? After having spent seven years with the Chicago Symphony. And as far as I know, and if I'm wrong, believe me, someone will correct me. He never got invited back. Mm. So Oakland was a good, safe place for him to build. But he was world class. Why and how did he end up settling in Oakland? We're often pushed to the side or, you know, given our own little children's tables or whatever. Correct. Correct. And Michael got very angry at me once because while he was here, I said to him, we were very good friends. I said, but are you ever going to conduct anything other than the chicken wing concerts out (laughs) in the tent on the south side? (laughs) Oh, he got so angry. I said, because you know, you know what Mary Sidlin and all these other guys had in mind for you. But somehow he got to Chicago and the journey became an end. There is apartheid here of the classical kind. I've survived and I've thrived, but it hurt. So how should we so how should we deal with speaking to these issues at the institutional level? Because it's so easy for people to dismiss our experiences and what we say, oh, everything isn't racist, everything is about I mean, what are what do you see as an effective way to push that conversation forward? Well, there's there's a few ways. And and for us. It's primarily about being ready whenever any opportunity presents itself. Mm. Because sometimes that's the only chance that you'll get, unfortunately. Look, don't you know players that are not black that make you scratch your behind every day about how they got a job? (laughs) Right. Right. Okay. But we can't have that experience because... Then we get dismissed as, well, they can play a little bit, but, you know, it's intuitive. It's primitive. It's, you know, they say everything but jungle. You know, even if we play well. I found for me that nothing beat a win. So it was not my career goal to write a book full of wedding tunes And so I could have been bitter and just said, no, I'm not going to do that. We'll just play Pachelbel Cannon, the Illinois National Anthem at Infinita. But it was Paul Freeman. Guess who was at that wedding? That particular wedding when the music from that book got heard, Paul Freeman. He came up to me after. He said, Renee, um, you know, people normally announce 
the composers of uh, the, the music that's being played, you know, during the reception part. I said, he said, well, who, who wrote the music? I said, well, first question is, did you like it? <laughs> sure. He said, yeah. I said, it was all me. Could have knocked them over. <laughs> I said, everything you heard was all me. And after, you know, picking the lip up, he said, okay, I didn't know you were a composer. I said, you know, people don't like people that do lots of things well, particularly if they're brown. So he contacted me about a week later and he said, I'd like to commission a piece for the Sinfonietta. Mm. Now I was principal violist which also made a whole lot of people crazy. I'm sure it did. Because <laughs> um, I don't like sitting in the back. I can't hear the same in the back. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I heard a whole lot of people sitting around me dropping all kind of notes on the floor. Yeah. And I said, um, I don't like being in the back. And so I said, you know, I've been in this scenario enough times. But he asked me to do a commission, and then he asked, he said, would you like to do a string piece, Renee? I said, oh, here we go. <laughs> Why were you worried about that? I said, no, well, <laughs> I wanna, don't want to do a string piece. What? I'm the crippled viola player. My theory won't extend to the rest of the orchestra. I said, no. He said, well, what do you want? I said, you have a whole orchestra sitting up on stage and you want me to write, you know, a, a version of Lightly Row for the strings. <laughs> no. Maybe he didn't trust that you have the vocabulary to engage a whole orchestra. Well, that's the problem with them, right? <laughs> yeah, that is their problem, isn't it? <laughs> See? So he said, all right. So... I wrote that first piece for them. It was uh, Sundown's Promise. It was uh, a depiction of the Jap of the celebration that happens uh, at the annual Japanese rice harvest. Had 13 taiko drums, full orchestra, buto dancers, shamisen ensemble. No, I did not write a Martin Luther King legacy. Piece. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was wonderful. But then he said, all right, okay, so what do you want to do next year? See, sometimes we don't get to build up to the skill level. We have to have it and we have to prove it often mm -hmm. right away. Mm -hmm. When other, other ethnicities get the opportunity to screw up 10, 12, 15 times, oh, what he's just learning. But when it's us, if we don't come out and hit a home run, you're liable to disappear. And I wasn't about to disappear. <laughs> so I wonder with all of that in mind, I wonder if you'll speak to uh, what I see as an obligation. I won't put words in your mouth, but what I see as an obligation when some of us, when those of us who make it to certain positions to pull the next one up. You said you didn't write the Martin Luther King tribute piece, but I'm sure there are ways in which you have taken advantage of your position oh, in yeah. these spaces to get more oh, of yeah. us on. Guess what? Enter 
Chicago Modern Orchestra Project. Multi-ethnic, tons of people that I actually had brought in as personnel manager to the Chicago Sinfonietta. Because at that point, Paul said, ooh, she's actually able to be effective. And at that time, I was actually um, the executive director of two other orchestras in the suburbs. So what we did was he said, I need you to vet these players, give them work, give them, put them in these orchestras. If you think they're ready to be groomed in the Sinfonietta, bring them on. That didn't always mean that they were ready, but it meant that no one else was going to give them, give them an opportunity. Right. And I was lucky enough that the board and Paul said, okay, we're looking at, we want the percentage. We're not looking for all black, but we need the percentage of minority presence in this orchestra to go as high as you can take it. When I left, we were almost at 35%. Of course, the majority of them um, scattered through the string sections, um, a couple in the percussion. Um, you win players have a very strict mafia <laughs> and you don't like letting minority players in. Mm. You, I'm sure you've experienced it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. But I did push and get some in and I felt like that was, aside from my own musical development, what I did with Sinfonietta was a worthy life journey because this is what a lot of us wanted. We wanted orchestra jobs. We wanted our connection to classical music to generate income so that we could call ourselves professional you know, musicians. Not everybody wants to teach by default. Right. Um, and, and people get upset when I say this, but honestly, who wakes up in the morning and says, I desire to be a middle school band, <laughs> band director? I'm Nobody. sure some do. I'm sure some do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> but not sorry, to, sorry to the two of you that did, but no. <laughs> um, you, we, we, we practiced and we did this because we love the music. Mm-hmm. It's not that we were seeking to be attached only to white organizations, but they're the ones that had, by default, that had to be the aspiration. Okay. Right. So when I started the Chicago Modern Orchestra Project, um, I part of me knew that when Paul left Sinfonietta or decided to do whatever, that if I wanted my journey to continue at the level that I had it, I had to form my own orchestra. That was a hard decision because economically you're talking about, you know, the union and, and, and players and, and we, we don't, we don't have enough um, in, in this city at that level to only have an orchestra of blacks, but I wasn't looking for an orchestra of only blacks. I was looking for a setting in which everybody was empowered equally. Mm -hmm. So finding venue, begging for money, the same thing they do when they 
<laughs> but that well, was just the, the galas, the all of those. Thank things. you. Thank <laughs> you. I learned all of that inside that structure with the Foss Valley Symphony, Illinois Chamber Symphony, Chicago Symphonietta. You know, I just I put those skill sets to use, all those things that I learned when I wasn't on stage. Okay. So and we just started working. So the the the, the pinnacle of that for me has been able to be responsible to help people see their potential, to help people of color see their potential. And not just as teachers, teaching is important, but you have to realize that your dreams don't have to be put on the sidelines if you don't want them to be. Mm -hmm. If something, if something grabs you strongly, then do that. But don't do that because nobody gave you a chance because nobody let you in. Hence, we do often have to enable each other and form our own. We have to build our own tables. We have to build our own chairs. We got to buy our own plates, buy our own food. And we can make those organizations as high as the organizations that we, we strove to be a part of when we were younger. When we were younger, we didn't know that they wouldn't let us in. Mm-hmm. They didn't tell us that. That's, that's the part of the training that we missed, right? Or that they left out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can say there's not, not a bitter bone in my body because what I learned about classical music and the apartheid system in classical music in the U.S. is that we can still do it, but we just have to come at it at another way. And so often we have to be super critical, not only of our skill sets, we have to take all the players that engage us and say, we, we can't be sloppy. We've got to be at the top of our skill sets if we want to make what we do acceptable. Okay, so coming forward, all those years with Sinfonietta, I left um, after 26 years, was pushed because someone else wanted that legacy. Hmm. Paul had gotten sick. Paul had left. So now the ocean was blue and they wanted to change the mission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so sister girl had to go. Okay. But in the meantime, I decided, hmm, well, I've had some success with this composition stuff. Go back to school. You got a break. You got some money. Go. Went back and got the master's and the doctorate in composition. And people said, why do you go back to school that late? Well, we never stop learning. Ever. Ever. And plus, I wanted to be able to roll those diplomas up and smack folk on the head. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> when, when, when you even intimated that I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I crossed the bridge and included new music, creative music. So hence the invitation to join the AACM, of which I knew nothing about. Yep. But... It's been an absolute blast 
accessing all that information on that side of the tunnel. How would, how would you well, how would you describe AACM to folks who don't know what that organization okay. is? Um, short story, um, Richard Muhal Abrams and a few others started the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians in 1965. Again, I would tell what I see as a story, but here in Chicago, there was definitely a great divide in the music scene. You know, there was the Black Union and the White Union. Mm -hmm. So in case people don't know, in general, any of the unions in the U.S. that are hyphenated are unions that federal law mandated the Black and white unions have to join. Okay, but what happened was that the white unions pretty much absorbed all the work. So the Black players who had been working and recognized and had strong bases in the Black community, those communities were also usurped by the white unions. Wow. Common story. Okay, so again, you have... Um, creative musicians creating what they termed great black music and people who are well um, educated and grounded in what, what they see as um, our platform, our music. Um, they got together and started this uh, organization. Um, in, at the bottom of it, the AACM is an organization of empowerment so that we learn from each other, we give to each other while you are in the learning stages of where, wh however you come into the organization, mm -hmm. you're encouraged to find your voice. And so for me, of course, now I'm a, a very aware at that time of what whites did in the 40s and 50s, the John Cages, the Earl oh, Brown, sure. yeah. the Morton Feldmans, the Julius Eastmans, though they kind of leave him out of the history. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and quite frankly, with the study and stuff that I've done, hey, I see a whole lot of Julius Eastman and some of those guys' stuff, which is why they wanted him pushed out. So end of, I will now get down off that soapbox. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but with the, with the AACM, did for blacks was basically what John Cage did for white composers. He was the umbrella under which anything went and you had the freedom to create and to explore your voice. So this is why underneath that umbrella, people were developing graphic scores, text scores, you know, the fluxus movement is, 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 is growing. But the AACM provided that for people of color, because if you go back into your homework and look up fluxes and all that, uh, you might find one, you sure. might find two. Yeah. So I believe the AACM kind of protected itself by basically saying this is primarily a black organization. Now that, rankles some people because they say, well, you want, you want into this, but you won't let us into 
that. Yeah. How do you and engage I, that question? Um, remember the hyphenated unions because mm. we see what happens. So we can engage with you, but we have to have our own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have to have our own. We have to have an arena in which we can encourage and embrace each other no matter what level we're at. If you have the desire to learn. So that's why the AACM is special. Music there by the late, great Julius Eastman, one of his most famous compositions. All right, Scott, brace yourself. The composition is called Crazy Nigger. All right, listen, I know there's some folks who don't know this story. We have Chuck in the room on camera, so I'm going to, if I'm not saying this for anybody but him, I'm going to do that. But I'm sure some of y'all don't know the legacy of Julius Eastman. So long story short, in a world of the folks like John Cage, um, Stockhausen, all of these experimental composers on, on the on the classical uh, scene. We had a black man um, in New York named Julius Eastman. Um, incredible music, um, and his music really touched on the politics and the and the social side of the world. Again, he 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 wasn't writing this music that was separated from the rest of the world. He was really engaging the world with his compositions. So one of his compositions, again, uh, one of the most famous ones, he uses the N word, and in describing it, we, and we even have the audio from the lectures in describing it, he talks about this piece of music being written as a statement to um, that being the way black folks are seen, you know, and the fact that black folks are not oblivious to that. This isn't something that just happens in the back rooms and in whispers, oh, Mm -hmm. y'all treat us so well and then say this stuff behind our back. No, we are aware of that perception of us and he is writing a piece of music to that. Okay, so I'm that, okay, I'm going to be a crazy one, you know. Anyway, getting into all that, so um, unfortunately, he got um, caught up in uh, with the disease of addiction, uh, died on the street. Uh, much of his music confiscated uh, by the police. They say some of it is still in police custody as um, evidence for for certain things. So you know this this is a, an American classical music story that so many folks don't know, and I can understand with the harsh language why the mostly white and all white classical institutions, including the radio stations, wouldn't platform this piece of music. And listen, if if I heard somebody who is not black on the classical radio station talk about crazy N-word and saying the N-word, yeah, I'm going to have an issue. And Scott, there has to be some middle ground as to how that story can be shared with classical audiences and even the piece of music. I can, can I ask you how you how you would approach that? Let's say like so. I'll, I'll 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 tell you this. I'll give you this situation. The first time I aired music by Julius Eastman, I was in Knoxville because a listener read an article about Julius Eastman, and she was like, "Oh, did you know about this person? I wonder if you can air any of his music X, Y, and Z." So I had to find my path toward how I can share this story and um, 
let audiences know what the title of it is before mm-hmm. I play it for them. So I figured that out for myself. Let's say you get that email and you have the power to put this on the radio. Um, do you believe this is a story that your audiences should know? And how do you think you would go about doing so? I can't tell it. I can't. I'd have to give it to somebody. I'd, I'd If I were the music director, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know that I don't like the word. Yeah. And I'm not going to say it. I will. It doesn't feel good in my mouth in any instance. Of course. And I hope you and, understand I'm not saying, would you say the word? That's not the question. No, I'm you're asking. talking about how to give, the, how to set the context, how to set the stage around the music. Right. Because I do enjoy that. I, I do like what he has to say with the piano. Mm-hmm. But it, what direction can I go? Because if I, if I allude to it, if I say crazy N word, if mm-hmm. I say crazy N, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't feel right. It, it's, it should, I, as much as I want the story to, to, to his story to be known, mm-hmm. it's not me that should be telling it. I, and I'm sorry if you think it's safe and I'm copping out, but I, I can't do it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say you're playing it safe, but I think my point is this is one of those more obscure stories in classical music for that reason. I just wonder how we can, uh, of course, you know, diversity in these spaces is vital because I am completely comfortable telling that story on the radio, right? right? So if there's someone at every station and every arts institution who can do that, this is these are stories and these are narratives that enrich the audience and their perspective on classical music. So that has to happen. I, I have to center that. The staffs have to be diversified. And I believe there have to be ways for white folks to figure out how to share these stories. And if if that means, you know, not all of his compositions have the N-word in it. So if that means, you know, never playing those pieces, so be it. I still think, though, that there's a way for a white person to get a mostly white audience thinking about that concept of the way black people know that they're seen by white people and how that manifested once upon a time in a piece of uh, solo piano music. Maybe, but I'm not there yet. Well, I'm, I'm not. And you might remember in season one, you were still working at American Public Media and mm-hmm. you put this on your... On my uh, Black your, History your, Listen on your list. Black History Listen list. And I got right? sent to the principal's office. <laughs> right. Okay. So you might remember that I asked you then, mm-hmm. where are we with this when, it's in con- when, when the context is a title of a piece of art? If it were a sculpture or a painting or anything Mm -hmm. and and you said never it'll that word will never be acceptable because of everything around it so i'm i'm not sure how i i would have to i would have to go on a sabbatical or something to think about how i would i mean if it felt to me and i stand and to be clear i stand by that i don't think a white person should be saying that word even in context of presenting this music i do think through real engagement, real conversation uh, with uh, uh, diverse groups of people and with black people with that real rapport and understanding, I believe there is a way for a white person to spread that story 
to radio audiences. We have to talk about the nuance of language. We have to talk about things like offering maybe trigger warnings for for certain uh, portions of the audience. But music like this deserves to be platformed. And it's a shame, and it's it's a, sorry, it's a shame that the the discomforts and the social politics and the and the you know the way racism has manifested it's a shame how those things at the end of the day keep music like this in the shadows instead of at the very least on the radars if not you know toward the center of what people are thinking about when they think about contemporary american classical music we know the folks know the name stockhausen and john cage and john adams they don't know the name julius eastman but he was living in that in in that same ecosystem of right. music, we, I, I feel like we have to think about a way to do that. And you know, I'm not saying that you're copping out, you're playing it safe. But what I am saying is that that feeling can't be the end of the story. It can't be. Well, I don't feel comfortable now, so that's just that. I feel like there is a way. I feel like one day you will be, you specifically, will be able to tell that story to your audience because you know the language or how to approach it. You know, it, it's one thing for me to just be throwing this at you right now. You know, uh, I think there is that road. I think there's that possibility because more, more and more and more and more people need to know this composer's name, this late composer's name. That's That that may be the case, but that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily the man to tell the story in the moment. Sure, yeah. And I'm even more, and, and now you've even got me thinking about, because this is such a minefield, now you've even got me thinking about uh, the trigger warning mm-hmm. uh, is is that even the right word to use anymore uh, right yeah that's well, true okay, because that's true i didn't think about that so i feel i feel like if i were to do it right now i would fail yeah yeah and and and, 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 it's, and it's better to not do than to <laughs> talking about news headlines <laughs> it, it's it, it See, I'm stuttering, I'm stammering here because it, I feel like I should be at least be able to approach it, but I, I know that I'm not ready to do it, and um, and this whole conversation makes me feel very on the very uncomfortable in this chair. Yeah, right now. Yeah, and, and it's only because I agree with you, and I don't know what to do. So, I think. Thinking about it, um, and you know, it's the bare minimum, you know, to con- consider and think about and and how we can make this happen. But unfortunately, right now where we are industry wide, the work is getting people to actually consider to think about it, getting people to learn the story of Julius Eastman and to get them to understand why that is one that your audience needs to understand in some way that they can. Mm-hmm. And look, I'm sorry, again. As much as I don't take anything back, I do believe that there is a path toward, for, for white folks to be able to tell these stories and to honor this composer without using the N-word, without using any problematic language. That is important, but I'll loop back around and say the centerpiece of that has to be having the diverse staffs. If your staff is all white, you don't have the tools to engage your audience, and that's just that. We need more people to understand the obviousness of that problem now. As we transition into the fourth movement, it's it's obvious to people that there is some discomfort or there should be some caution at the very least around a piece of music with that title, okay? 
when we talk about something that, from my perspective, from the perspective of many black people, is equally problematic, equally triggering, equally whatever, it's not treated in that way. A piece of music, a movement from a suite by Debussy called Gollywog's Cakewalk. Let's get into the fourth movement by listening to a little bit of it. Okay, first of all, that was very well performed. We were talking earlier about the characterization of the notes and the and the you know the music itself. In that excerpt we just listened to, Scott, can you not hear some sort of attempt to copy in 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 best terms, you know, celebrate black music? Do you hear that? And I, and I'm not, you know, if you don't, it's fine. But in those syncopations, the beat um ba dum bum ba, is there no Joplin? Is there no soft shoe? Is is there none of that that you hear? Because that's obvious to my ear. I heard it after you brought it up. What two hours ago? So I think I think that's a part again of the conversation when we're talking about um, diverse staffs and diverse perspectives. I hear the reverberations of Joplin and and all those folks in in that music. So when we talk about the problematic word, the problematic title of Gollywog's Cakewalk, it's not about just switching the title of the piece and keeping the music because, in my opinion, the music itself has problematic implications and it's so easy for us to nix a title and try to recontextualize it that way mm-hmm. that that's the first point i wanted to make about this piece before i said anything if anyone remembers anything i say uh, as it pertains to this piece of music the notes themselves can be problematic the notes themselves can be racist and that's something that folks have to understand okay Earlier, uh, or or last week, rather, one of the um, groups I'm a part of on social media, this private group of uh, radio professionals, uh, radio, classical radio people, the question was posed, what do we do with this piece of music, Gollywog's Cakewalk? Okay. The fact that that question was being asked was very interesting to me because, again, no one would ask what do what should we do with Julius Eastman's crazy nigger? No one would ask that question. No one would, at least not these uh, predominantly white staffs, that wouldn't dare be asked. But this question is being asked, and I'm not I'm not shaming the asking of the question as much as I'm making the point mm-hmm. that these two things are equally <laughs> should be equally uncomfortable, should be seen as equally bad. But because of that lack of perspective, you know, something like a gollywog or a title that says gollywog's cakewalk doesn't seem like a problem for a lot of people. In all of your years of classical radio, I know this has to be a piece that you've contextualized, that you've shared with audiences. Um, Dozens I, of times. I, I know in these past few years, maybe that's not the case. Well, do you remember the stories that you were telling about this piece of music? Maybe you were just presenting the whole suite and not centering in on this piece of music. Yeah, I don't recall uh, ever playing it outside the suite. Uh, and my story was always about, you know, how it was it was written for what Mon Petit Chou, the his, um, what, was it actually his daughter or his stepdaughter? 
I forget. I, I believe it, yeah. it was his daughter. But yeah. but uh, so toys, right? right. Like a, a children's piece of music. Okay. Um, but that's you, the way I learned the story. Right. When you learned what a gollywog is, what was your what what what, what were your immediate thoughts when it comes to the piece of music? Real, it happened really late for yeah. me to find out what a gollywog was. I, I didn't see this growing up. Yeah, wasn't wasn't this more popular like in in Britain? Wasn't this like an English? I mean, Debussy was French, so so yeah. I I didn't see it growing up, and I mean, it's kind of grotesque to to look at it. I mean, it's yeah. not flattering. Yeah, um, and I never would have tied it to minstrel shows or anything like that. It's 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 just an ugly being. So now that you know what a gollywog is and can and can connect not only the title okay to being a problem but even the music itself being a caricature of blackness black musical culture what is your answer to the question what should be done with that piece of music i it's not my favorite this is an easy one this isn't my favorite wc piece so it's easy for me not to put this on but beyond your personal <laughs> taste of it you know are you okay with one of your colleagues putting it on? To take the whole children's suite out of the catalog doesn't bother me. Okay. That's that's part one. Part two is why isn't and and let's let's stay specific. Why isn't the conversation canceled Debussy? I'm not I'm not saying we should or we shouldn't. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking why is that not the conversation. The question is not, what do we do with Debussy? The question is, what do we do with this piece of music? Mm -hmm. So why isn't the question, what should we do with Debussy? Um, do you you want to know what I think about it? Please. Or, um, I, I think that his music has been played enough and he's been placed on a high enough pedestal that it would take more to knock him down. How about that? Um, that he's been lionized. He's in the canon. He's been canonized there. Is there nothing that could be done to, I mean, is, is there look, no discovery look, that could been, be made to, 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 to change that conversation? A discovery about the, the piece of music? A discovery about Debussy. So now well, we already know that he was a womanizer. We already so know he was a womanizer. We already know that he was a racist. So I suppose there is nothing that this composer can do wrong to be to be moved to the side, to be moved to the margins. We're 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 completely comfortable with that. That is not, you know, when it comes to a prelude to the afternoon of a fawn or, you know, what whatever these other pieces are, you know. We 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 don't mind overlooking that bit of his legacy to continue to plat. There's no discomfort, you know. I'm not saying there's uh, specific feelings one way or another, but I'm saying the thing that's absent is the discomfort. And what frustrates me is that we have so many composers, many of which who are black, because of the discomfort that surrounds their stories. That gets pushed to the side, but we will bend over backwards to continue to platform the music of a racist womanizer. Help me. Help me. That's my argument to every um, music director, every programmer, every host. If I were behind the mic, every piece of music by Debussy would be gone. Every piece of music by Debussy would be replaced. We can wag our finger, you know, in, in many different ways at the way that the industry looks right now, but 
I'm wrong if I go on a platform and say we should never play Debussy anymore. I'm inappropriate at that point. I don't understand what we need to see or what uh, programmers, the gatekeepers need to see to take old composers from the canon out, not only for the sake of past whatevers, but because there's music that your audiences are never hearing. I don't understand that. People are doing their best. You know, the, the comments have been very interesting, doing their best to make a case for the continuing uh, platforming of Gollywog's Cakewalk. They will do everything they can to platform the characterization of black music, but won't include black music. That's the part that trips me out. <laughs> you see? So, I mean, and and let's face it, this, this podcast is called Triloquy, so I'm going to go there. If there were a historic black composer, let's say someone like William Grant Still wrote something that was uh, anti-Semitic, I believe he would be out of here. I believe that the powers that be would make sure that we don't even know his fucking name, but we have a literal womanizing racist composer who we make every exception for. If that's not an example of classical music's racism, I don't know what is. Now, my point is not to make people feel guilty or even feel guilty for asking the questions. It's through the conversations that we that we get there. What I'm trying to help people to do and see is that there are real inconsistencies at play. There are real things that are not being considered for some composers that are being considered for other composers. Now, if somebody wants to, uh, if, if a music programmer wants to say, look, I understand that Debussy was a womanizing racist, but that doesn't bother me and I just don't care. Well, I mean, that's 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 their value system. I don't have anything to to argue there. For everybody else, you know, what is your answer? What is your reason? What is your excuse for continuing to make sure that this music is out in the center and that we make every exception for this composer? I mean, what I, I don't I, I want you to weigh in. But again, I'm not trying to ask questions to to put you on the spot or make you feel away. But those are my feelings right now. What is the reason for continuing other than the fact that this is a person's name? We know this what discovery is, has is, to be made. This is very uncomfortable. This is very uncomfortable. So, okay, well, and, um, and this is and this is where we're going to end. This is where we're going to end, Scott, because mm. I, I understand how it's getting uncomfortable. The discomfort, <laughs> and you know, I love you. The discomfort that white people feel around this conversation is a drop in the bucket for black folks who have to see that sort of imagery. I'll have it as the uh, triloquy uh, photo, that sort of in, uh, imagery next to people's brushing it to the side, next to that not being a deal breaker for someone to continue to play this music. So what does that mean to me? That, that if you have straight up nigger saying racists among your myths, that must not be a deal breaker for you either, huh? Because if that gollywog is not a deal breaker for you to stop platforming Debussy, I guess nothing is. Bye, y'all.